Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. All right. Hello, ED ECMO. It's Zach Shiner, and we are back. We are back to have some amazing new season. I don't know if you want to call this a season, but I uh, took a little time off after writing the uh, or editing the ELSO ECPR textbook. And we are now back with just an amazing couple of uh, new podcasts, new recordings. And today I am super privileged to kick this new, this new time off with Denise Rice Miranda. Denise, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Chuck. So uh, before we jump into that, though, I'm going to tell you what he's doing in the Netherlands, and he's going to tell us what he's doing. Uh, a couple of announcements. Big announcement is that Reanimate is back. We are post-COVID. We are we've done a couple of, of smaller sessions, kind of within San Diego over the course of the last couple of years. But we're having the big course again, and it's September seventh and eighth. Uh, go to reanimateconference.com to, to to look at it, or on EDECMO website you can find it. Scott Weingart, Josh Elay from, from the Alpha is going to be out here. Alice Hooten from, from Paris, Jim Manning, uh, just an amazing crew. Janelle Badulak from UW, co-editor of the book, will be there. So come on out. It's going to be uh, at the beach in San Diego. September is a beautiful time of year, and we will see you all there. Second thing is we're going to start kind of just getting more into this ED ECMO and back into the podcast system. And we've got a couple of great episodes that are going to be coming up with Justina Swall and with Neville. And, and so look, look forward to getting those out to you in the upcoming few months. All right, with that, let's jump into it. Denise, tell me what in the world is going on out in the Netherlands? Well, we've doing uh, ECPR on the ER for some while. And we're thinking, how can we get this thing going faster? How can we get faster ECMO blood flow uh, to our patients. If we do um, ECPR on the ER, we are having pump running at approximately 60, 65 minutes after initial 911 call. And we are ready 24-7. The ECPR team is ready in the hospital. If the paramedics call, we potentially have an ECPR candidate uh, five minutes later, 24-7, five minutes later, we are ready, prepped, sterile, at the ER, but it has to be faster. It has to, you have to get this pump running faster. The Netherlands, Jack, let me tell me something, tell you something about the Netherlands. Netherlands is about 16,000 square miles. It has uh, 17.5 million inhabitants. EMS services, are, uh, the only paramedics on the EMS services, and we have four HEMS teams. And in this HEMS team is an anesthesiologist or a trauma surgeon with a nurse and a pilot. So we have three of us and this HEMS is running 24-7. And we have four HEMS teams, so each HEMS covers approximately 4,000 square miles. And we're thinking if this HEMS team is ready 24-7, ready to dispatch two minutes after the initial alarm, we're flying, we're airborne, how wonderful it would be to have ECMO on this helicopter on this together with the HEMS teams and just train the HEMS teams to perform ECPR. And then we're going to be even faster doing ECPR pre-hospital. And that is what we are doing now, doing with the HEMS teams pre-hospital ECPR. So you guys had a problem. You had a, an up 
and running eCPR system, but you said we just, we can't get to people fast enough. The next logical step is to go into the field and you have now covered what percent of the Netherlands? 100% of the Netherlands is now covered uh, by the HEMS teams. And so you can get pre-hospital eCPR in whole the Netherlands. So the can you believe that? Is now covered. That is amazing. So the entire country of Netherlands now has pre-hospital eCPR capabilities thanks to Denise and his amazing team. That is just such a cool thing. Yeah, it's not only limited to the big big cities, even in the rural areas, it's no problem to get eCPR in a timely fashion. If you, before doing pre-hospital eCPR, you could get eCPR by going to the hospital in a circle of approximately 10, 50 miles around this eCPR hospital. So less than 50% of the Netherlands were covered for pre-hospital eCPR. And having eCPR after 60, 65 minutes of initial 911 call, you would be on pump. And we're now aiming to have 100% of the country covered for eCPR and hopefully going on pump 40 minutes after initial 911 call. That is incredible. Now tell me, this sounds like a logistical nightmare. How did you how did you make this happen? First, getting money. The project is sponsored by the Dutch government, by the Ministry of Health. And the second is training. Training is a nightmare because you have to, to train the whole HEMS crew for performing eCPR. Most physicians never have done ECMO, and especially the most nervous, most nurses never had seen ECMO. So we had a very intense, very intense training program, and it's going well. We have a few complications, not much, approximately 10% of complications, and have to be, say, uh, honestly, we only have done 11 cases now, as we've only started in January. 10% of complications and, and doing just fine. The, um, of those patients who are now on pump, we, uh, they are on pump a little bit more than 40 minutes after the initial 911 call. Oh, man, that is incredible. 40 minutes. So you guys get a helicopter up and running to the scene. And then I, I imagine one of the biggest problems is that time from when the helicopter lands to getting the people to the patient. How do you do that? If the, uh, the helicopter can land in very tiny places... And the last 100, 150 meters, or a little bit more, um, the police is always ready to pick us up with uh, big bags. Uh, so they, they, they come pick us. And within one to two minutes, we are at the scene after landing. Wow. Wow. Okay. So you've done 11 cases. It's been since January. You've got... Again, how many different sites that are running HEMS teams with eCPR? We have four uh, sites running running eCPR. Um, it is in study setting, and we're doing a step wedge design. So everyone has started the same in the same month, uh, January last uh, January uh, twenty two, and Rotterdam is the first one who is doing uh, pre hospital eCPR. The rest of the the sites are doing conventional uh, CPR. And that means that they are called for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with an age below 50, but they don't have ECMO on board. And they are, so they are the control group. And in September, 
the second uh, hem site will start doing ECPR. And uh, one year later, the third HEMS uh, will start uh, doing ECPR. And a little bit after that, the fourth uh, side will start doing ECPR. So that's a step wedge design. Okay, yeah, a great, great study design. I, I'll put the in the show notes the pictures which really show this well, which even speaks more to these 11 patients you've had so far is just a subset of the total Netherlands population because a lot of them are still just doing conventional uh, Yes. Yes. CPR. Okay. So one of the issues that I see with this is that you, you are, this is a massive project, meaning you're, you're not only starting learning how to do eCPR, you're learning how to do pre-hospital eCPR. There have got to be some hangups in, in kind of getting people up to speed. Yes, it is. uh, There's a lot of questions uh, of the paramedic crew. What, what do you expect from us? Uh, what what do we have to do? Should we have training? The the paramedics crew they they really don't know what what they're gonna get and and what they have to prepare for. It took a, a while to 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 convince them uh, to convince the medical managers that we are expecting nothing from the uh, emergency medical crew. Uh, we only expect to, that they continue uh, advanced life life support. That's the only thing. However, to, to explain what we are doing, we've made some movies, uh, some explanatory movies, just to explain um, what we expect from the um, emergency medical crew and what we will do and what we expect from them. And we expect from them only that they continue advanced life support, nothing more. Yeah, I, I'll put Denise's website up. You've got to watch this video with this surfer. I thought it was from San Diego when I saw the <laughs> surfer out there clutching her chest and trying to save her. It's, it's fantastic. And and uh, of course, training the hems crew is also very crucial. Uh, we've we've done that with with uh, movies, explanatory movies, uh, webinars, and uh, of course, a very intense training scheme with three teams each each training. Uh, would consist of only three teams that would be uh, three doctors and three nurses and a doctor and a nurse would form one team and uh, with two simulation stations uh, having two days only simulating 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 they were only simulating never drink coffee only simulating 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 so it was a very intense course and thereafter we uh, will come once a week uh, to the uh, ham station just to do a repeat repeat training. And uh, during six months, we're coming once a week to the station, just doing it again, training again, training again. Oh man. Okay, so so to even put on top of this though, you are making this trial into an eCPR comparison to conventional chest compressions, is that correct? Yes, yeah. And so your goal uh, is to prove not only that ECPR, pre-hospital ECPR is possible in Netherlands, but that it's better than conventional. It's better than conventional, yes. And the conventional group, the the HEMS physician in the conventional group could also decide to do ECPR in the hospital. So transport the patient to the hospital and perform ECPR in the hospital is also a possibility. Mm. Those patients are not excluded from ECPR. Okay, so you're up and running for a few months. You've got 11 cases. Uh, what have you learned? Well, what, we, we, what did we learn is that it is extremely difficult, as everyone says, it's extremely difficult to 
to pick the right patients at at scene. It is very difficult. We had a few cases in which the people told us, well, the uh, automatic external defibrillator, he went off. We used it and it went off. And and we did this ECPR and uh, on the ICU when everything was calm, um, they say, well, it didn't went off. I put it on, but it didn't went off. So these little differences, these little nuances um, are critical. Um, and that is where you very easily make mistakes. And those patients were the patients in which the, the automatic defibrillator should have went off. Uh, but when the uh, emergency medical service came and they put the uh, monitor on, they only saw a systole, only a systole. And uh, with the story that the automatic defibrillator went off, we would perform eCPR, but that is a very tricky one. So we've now modified it a little bit. And um, if the uh, automatic defibrillator went off, but the uh, paramedics only saw uh, asystole, we just go again to the family and take one or two minutes just asking, okay, but tell us exactly what happened. What did you do? What did you see to be certain that the automatic defibrillator went off and that it was a witness arrest? Because I think that if the EMS services primarily see uh, asystole, it should trigger you, is the story right? Was it a witness arrest as it is told? And was it primarily ventricular fibrillation? I think that's one of the most important lessons that we learned. Wow. Okay. So pre-hospital, just like in the hospital, really tough to get accurate information. Maybe yeah. the family member is even a little bit closer, which is good. Your inclusion criteria is pretty tight. 50-year-olds is the highest you're going up to. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because we were looking at the arrest database of Hans von Schuppe, and um, we, we took it in the other in the other way. We first thought, okay, if we are serving the whole country, that would mean that we would flood the uh, the Dutch health system if we would go to seventy. So we first thought, in the HEM setting, what is the maximum uh, amount of patient that we could handle, and that would be around. 400 500 extra calls and then we would go to the intensive care units and say okay if we have a little bit more patients on ecmo how much more ecmo could we do and uh, they would say well about annually we came uh, to a figure approximately 200 so um, then we got to the arrest database of hans and uh, we said okay if we have a maximum of four, five hundred extra calls a year for a whole Holland with an extra 200 ECMOs for Holland a year. What would be the age that we could do? And then we came around 50. So it is a little bit a capacity driven uh, number, the 50 years, instead of um, any other kind of logical number. Yeah. And tell me, I, I'm interested in how you staff this. So the e, these are e, uh, HEMS crews that are going out to all calls. You have yes. to have an eCPR physician on there at all time. First of all, how many cannulators do you have now in the whole program? All the HEMS physicians are uh, cannulating. Uh, so we don't have an extra eCPR, eCPR physician. We don't have an extra ECMO uh, physician. We don't have perfusion. 
just the uh, HEMS physician with a HEMS nurse will perform eCPR and will treat this ECMO patient for the first 30 minutes without perfusion. Okay, so that means, and how many HEMS physicians do you have? 13 HEMS physicians. 13, so for in, four in one station. In, in, in one station. Oh, in one station. So you have 52, 52 HEMS doctors? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you train 52 docs. That gets you 24-7 coverage. And yeah. if a HEMS, uh, if a helicopter is going out for a different call, what happens then? This uh, and another, uh, and an ECPR comes, then an uh, other helicopter will take over um, the call. I see. So uh, if uh, Rotterdam is busy, and we have a research station in uh, near Rotterdam, then the uh, HEMS physician of Amsterdam will come. And that is approximately 15 minutes flying. 15 minutes flying. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you have redundancy in the system. You've got 52 docs. You decided on the capabilities of your country and, and tuned your inclusion criteria to fit that. Yes. And you now are hoping in two years to have enough data that you can say one way or the other, whether this is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And two years is perhaps a little bit tight. We've just posted to the uh, ethical committee to, um, we filed a proposal to, to make it three years. So we're aiming for three years. I saw on your, on your website, you had that recruitment chart and it did seem like you were a little bit below what you were expected at this time. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, 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 that's true. Okay, so amazing. This is just amazing. So tell me, are there any, you've been through, you know, reanimate and all these things. Tell me, are there things that you're doing differently than other places or there are management techniques or tell me, tell me how this looks to you as it, as opposed to the rest of the world. Um, we, we're doing, of course, everything ultrasound guided and uh, we, we do the arterial and venous uh, cannula in one groin. And then we'll check if two guide wires are in one groin. Oh, sorry, two uh, guide wires are two vessels in one groin. If two if you see two guide wires, two vessels in one groin, then it should be okay. Um, and we primarily start with um, uh, two amplets, super stiff. Uh, so we don't um, we start immediately with the super stiff, and we're now using single step dilator uh, that is from Cook. It's a very long tapered dilator, and it goes uh, from the from the guide wire to 22 French uh, for the vein, and it will go to seven, uh, 16 French in the groin in the artery to put in a 25 French venous uh, cannula and a 17 French arterial cannula. And for the uh, leg reperfusion, we don't do that uh, pre-hospital. We, uh, we take the patient to the, to the hospital and we ask the hospital to do the leg perfusion cannula. Okay, so confirmation of wires in each vessel is done via a femoral groin ultrasound, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You use amplats, you use a single dilator, you use 17 and 25 French cannulas. Uh, how about pre-hospital blood, pre-hospital pressors? Are you used doing any of that? Yes, of course. Uh, pre-hospital blood, we have two uh, units of blood, packed cells. If they start bleeding, but usually they don't, we have two grams of fibrinogen and uh, some uh, calofusine. Kelef some colloids, vasopressors, of course. We gave, uh, usually we give them some dexamethasone, uh, one milligram a kilogram to uh, avoid uh, severe uh, reperfusion injury. 
And we also do in the left groin, we put an indwelling arterial uh, cannula and we connect it to a very small compass uh, pressure uh, monitor. So to have uh, intra-arterial blood pressure uh, monitoring and we aim for a blood pressure of 70, 80 millimeters of mercury. So we go for a little bit higher pressure. Wow. Okay. So you have pre-hospital arterial tracings. Amazing. Yeah. You So you have a... Um, you have pressors. So a lot of crossover with the French. However, you are doing it with the ultrasound guided percutaneous technique. Yeah. And then how about destination? Are you going straight to the cath lab or how, how are you working this? Now we first go to the uh, ER, uh, doing a quick, uh, quick check. Um, usually also CT scan uh, to be sure that there's no massive bleeding anywhere. And then uh, go very quickly to the uh, to the CAD lab usually, and the CT scan is uh, in the ER uh, and is very quickly done. So most we are between ten and fifteen minutes on the ER, and then we are up our way to the CAD lab. Ooh, very interesting question with the CT scan. This is going to come up in a few months from now too. So um, tell me, what has your been experience? Have you been finding some pretty big things on that CT? No, no, no bleeding, fortunately. And no, not, nothing very specific, uh, specific uh, on the CT scan. So perhaps we, we, we could, could skip that. It didn't brought us any, anything new, to be okay. honest. Yeah, that's going to be a, an interesting question moving forward on whether we do transition to this. Because those couple of papers that did show these massive findings, um, I think we just got to look at it a little bit. We'll have to see if that experience plays out. Okay, yeah. so... Uh, amazing. So now you've had 11 patients. I mean, invariably in these first 11 patients, there has to have been some, some big issues. What, what have you guys worked through? What can we learn from you on how to do this? Issues? Uh, well, of course, there's some mishaps. Um, we can lay one uh, VV ECMO. Uh, it was a very obese patient, uh, extremely obese. Um, the vessels were difficult to see. Uh, and we put in our protocol, if you don't see the vessels, don't puncture. Yeah. If you are a HEMS doctor uh, and you're really eager to, to puncture and really eager to help this patient, this young uh, patient, and, and this one had uh, kids standing aside, well, it was perhaps a little bit over-courageous to, um, to try to puncture this obese patient uh, while not seeing very well the vessels. So he ended up uh, VV ECMO, uh, uh, with a VV ECMO. Uh, I think that's our greatest mishap. Mm. Yeah, I've been there. Uh, <laughs> flow is smooth, smooth is fast. There, there you go. But yeah, they, I mean, these, this is just going to be invariably part of the process. And when you're talking yes. about people that are in refractory cardiac arrest, you said you're getting there at what you having them on pump by 45 minutes. Is that correct? Between 40 and 45 minutes. Uh, I think the mean was uh, 43 minutes on That's pump fantastic. after initial 911 call. That is really fantastic in, in timing. And so you're getting to the scene, what, at 30 minutes? Um, the no, at, minutes? Uh, at uh, approximately 20 minutes. Yeah, 20 minutes. Okay, that is yeah. that is fantastic. And so you even have room to, to even get this faster. Yes, yes. This is this is just a, a, a unbelievable program that you put together, Denise. Thank you, Jack. Tell me some cautions. I mean, I, I the one thing that comes to my mind is like looking at the Oslo papers and just how some 
this really aggressive early pro project, which is just seems like it's got all the right workings. Tell me fears moving forward with this. Well, there's something we, we still have uh, have to work on with is uh, the ECMO bag is quite heavy. It's uh, approximately 30 kilos. Emergency medical services only have pure oxygen uh, with them. So now we're giving 100% of oxygen through the ex uh, oxygenator and people end with extremely high um, PO2s uh, when they arrive to the hospital approximately 600, 700 millimeters of mercury of PO2. Uh, and that's, of course, logical if you give 100% of oxygen. Knowing that hyperoxia is really bad for the just resuscitated brain, we think we're now doubting, should we not take some air with us, a bottle of air, to being able to give air mix to, to the oxygenator? So reducing this uh, hyperoxia a little bit. And, and uh, from the survive, we have some people who are moving, who, uh, who have signs of life du during cannulation and 24 hours later, they're brain dead. And the people who survived were having trouble to see. The vision was a little bit blurred. And I'm just wondering, I'm not sure, but I'm just wondering, could hyperoxia be be a component uh, of, of, of this vision problem. So would we have a little bit better outcome if we combat this hyperoxia a little bit? Mm. Yeah, I did find that strange when I first went to Paris to see them you know, hauling around these blenders because uh, we don't even do it in our ER in America. So, uh, but it, you're spot on. Like if you can do it and, and it maybe has a significant outcome benefit, then yeah, blending on the scene would be ideal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh man. Well, this is fantastic. Denise, is there anything, anything else that the audience should know or that you'd like to say? Um, no, I think we have to get a little bit more experience yet. Now, relatively, I think, unexperienced. Uh, I'm waiting for more experience and, and more things to uh, to see coming. I think it's looking very good with a relative good survivor and, and relative good times, but time will tell. So I think this is the most important, Zach. Wow. So amazing. Now, real quick, have you have you do you have outcome data yet or is that still kind of in the hush hush? Now it's a little bit hush hush. Okay, good. Well, we—that's great. It'll keep us in suspense because we'll—we we'll, will definitely. I'll want to talk to you again for sure in the upcoming months and see how this is going. But this is just—I mean, kudos to you, kudos to your team, kudos to all the fifty-two Hems docs and all the nurses that you know went through this training program and have to continue to train because this is this is a major undertaking and something that we the whole world is going to benefit from. We can look to you and say, hey, listen, this, this happened. This, this actually worked. And they were able to cover the entire country with some organization. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think that that's indeed one of the most fantastic things is that it's not limited to the, to the big cities. It's not also available for the rural areas covering Hull Holland. And that, that was, that was the, um, I think the most important argument for the Dutch uh, Ministry of Health to finance this project, as we stay, as we were stating, well, okay, but resuscitation care is not everywhere the same. It, it does matter if you live in rural areas or in cities, it does matter. And the government didn't like that idea. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that that we have that same problem in San Diego, and I'm sure it also happens in other places where the no, you can't have it different in you know out in the desert or out in the in the rural yeah. area. So, <laughs> but you did it, you did it, you made it happen. All right, Denise, right. thank you so much. This is amazing, and and we will be talking to you soon. I I can't wait to hear what happens. Thank you very much, uh, Zach. Thank you very much for having me.